All right, we are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews here on the listener's commentary. And in this particular session, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. And chapter 9 picks up where chapter 8 left off with the superiority of the new covenant. So that's going to be the focus here of chapter 9, but it's going to unpack that and give some details for that. So specifically here, Hebrews 9, 1 through 14, picks up where the first half of chapter 8 left off. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, it mentioned that Jesus had to offer something as a high priest because that's what priests do. And uh, chapter 8, 1 through 6, describes Jesus as a priest serving in the true heavenly tabernacle. And it says that priests have offerings to give. So Jesus had to have an offering to give, but he never actually explains what that is. Well, that's what we pick up here in chapter 9. He's going to pick up where priests under the old covenant served and what priests under the old covenant offered, and then he's going to compare that to Jesus and his offering. And so it's going to explore all of this by looking at the way the tabernacle or the temple was to be laid out, what the priest did as part of the worship ceremonies in the tabernacle and temple, and then it's going to show what Christ as the ultimate final high priest did and compare those two to show that Jesus' offering is superior and better. The way he structures all of this is like this, verses 1 through 5 briefly describe the earthly sanctuary, that is the tabernacle. Verses 6 through 10 then relates uh, what the priests do and specifically the high priest offering and the implication of the manner in which it was offered. Then in verses 11 through 14, we get to Jesus' offering and showing its superiority. So 1 through 5, tabernacle, 6 through 10, priestly activity, 11 through 14, Jesus' offering and its superiority. So here we go. Part two of the new covenant is superior to the old. Let's talk about what they had to offer. So verse one says, now, even the first covenant had regulations for divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. The first covenant, we're talking about the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. Um, it's God's covenant with the nation of Israel by which he, he'd carry forward his promise until it was fulfilled in the Messiah. That's what we mean by the first covenant. Uh, and it had regulations for divine worship, and it had the earthly sanctuary. And over the next handful of paragraphs, the author of Hebrews is going to interact with the regulations of the instructions of the that we can read in Exodus and Leviticus for the tabernacle and tabernacle worship for Israel. And so even though in the first century, the tabernacle had long since been replaced by the temple in Jerusalem. The author is going to talk in terms of the tabernacle. And the reason for that is because he's actually interacting with the instructions given in Exodus and Leviticus. And so the temple standing in Jerusalem, and that's where worship has been happening for centuries, but he's going to talk in terms of the tabernacle, because he's interacting with what's said in Exodus and Leviticus. So he goes on then in verses two through five to briefly describe the way the tabernacle was supposed to be set up. This is what he says. For a tabernacle was equipped, the outer sanctuary, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. 
he begins by describing what is the first room inside the tabernacle. It would actually be helpful to you if you're not familiar with it to look at a map or a chart of the tabernacle. I, I'll put one of those inside the study hub just to give you a quick reference for uh, how the tabernacle was laid out. And he mentions uh, a couple of items inside the first room. So the tabernacle is, is this giant tent that the, uh, the Israelites during the time period of Moses were supposed to be able to transport. It was sort of like a portable uh, worship facility. That's essentially what it was. And, and they were going to set it up and it had two rooms. So the first room and the second room. He's describing the first room that he calls the outer sanctuary or uh, he says it's also sometimes called the holy place. And he mentions that there was a lampstand in it. This was a candelabra with seven lights that was to be kept lit permanently. And then there was a table with bread on it. Um, that table, sometimes called the table of show bread or sacred bread. And so you would put this bread on the table, it would be there. And then at the end of the week, new bread would be put there. That old bread would be given to the priest to eat for themselves. There was also a third item that was actually inside this first room. It is uh, the altar of incense. Interestingly enough, the book of Hebrews associates it with the inner room, the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies. It's been a bit of a puzzle for a long time to students of the book of Hebrews. It's like, well, we know that's in the first room, but he associates it with the second room. Why is that? So I'll give you some thoughts on that here in just a second. But here in verse 2, he notes the outer room. And he notes these two pieces of furniture. Then he describes the inner room, the most holy place, or sometimes called the Holy of Holies. So verse 3 says, behind the second veil, that is, the first veil was from the outside of the tabernacle into the first room. The second veil was uh, took you from the first room into the second room. And so behind the second veil, there was uh, a tabernacle, that is, a little tent room, which is called the most holy place, and he describes what was in there. Verse 4, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's staff which budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And so here he is describing the inner room, the most holy place, or the holy of holies, and he mentions some furniture that was associated with it. Here he mentions the altar of incense, which I noted above was technically in the first room, um, but he notes it here, and that's a puzzle. I'll give you some thoughts here in a second. Then he mentions the Ark of the Covenant, that wood box that was covered with gold plating that they were instructed to build there in the book of uh, Exodus. And inside the Ark was uh, a golden jar, which held some manna as a reminder of God's provision for them in the desert. Uh, Aaron's rod, which in this one story there had budded, again, as a symbol of God's uh, provision and power, and then the tablets which Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai. Those were all to be put inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, again, by the first century, the Ark has actually long since been lost in the first century because of the exile and all of that. He's describing the way things were instructed to be set up in the book of Exodus and so on, and that's why he talks this way about it. But why does he associate the altar of incense with the second room? Uh, some have suggested, well, the author of Hebrews just made a mistake. 
that seems highly unlikely since he's a Jew steeped in his Old Testament and he's interacting with the Old Testament. He knew the instructions. It's very clear he could read Exodus and Leviticus. He knew his way around the tabernacle and the temple. Highly unlikely that he made a mistake. So why does he associate the, the altar of incense with the inner room? Well, probably the best explanation is that even though the altar of incense was in the first room, uh, it was in reality very closely associated with the, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the second room. It was con- so closely associated with it that it could almost be considered part of the furniture of that second room. Even in Exodus, when it's describing this, it just associates it really closely with the furniture of the, holy, the most holy place. So, for example, Exodus chapter 30, verse 6 says um, that the altar of incense is before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony. Or Exodus chapter 40, verse 5 says that the altar of incense is before the ark. No mention of the veil. It's just in the presence of the ark. Or Exodus chapter 40, verse 26 says that the golden altar is in front of the veil, all trying to associate as tightly as it can with the inner room. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20 says that the altar of incense belongs to the inner sanctuary. And so while it was located in the first room, it was right up against that second veil and thus right next to the Ark of the Covenant. And all that separated him was that curtain. And so in a lot of ways, it was associated with the, the inner sanctuary. In fact, on the one day a year that the high priest could actually enter into the most holy place, the Day of Atonement, he actually took incense from the altar with him into the most holy place. It was part of the worship ceremony for that. So even though the uh, altar of incense was located in the first room, the holy place, it was right next to the Holy of Holies and the Ark, and it was associated with the Ark and the Holy of Holies. That actually may explain the language here in the book of Hebrews, where in verse 4, it doesn't say that the golden altar is in the most holy place. It says having a golden altar, very loosely described as being associated with it. So the author here has described the, the tabernacle's two rooms, the outer room and the inner room. Uh, And then he goes on in verse 5 to actually describe one of the features of the Ark of the Covenant in the inner room. He says this, And above it, that is above the Ark, were the cherubim of glory. Cherubim were uh, angelic beings with wings. And the Ark was supposed to have uh, cherubim, uh, statues of them on each end of it with their wings outstretched over the top, sort of covering over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so uh, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atonement cover. The atonement cover was the lid on the Ark of the Covenant where on the Day of Atonement, blood would be sprinkled on that lid uh, as part of making atonement for the people. And so you have these angelic beings with their wings stretched over from one end to the other, kind of their wings pointed towards each other, touching in the middle uh, over the top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And then the author of Hebrews says, now, about these things, we cannot speak in detail. So I want to say more about this, uh, but we're not going to say a whole lot more now. Don't have time for that. I just want to kind of jog your memory about these things so you can uh, you can remember them, so I can make the point I want to make about Jesus and his Messiahship. All right? 
So after this brief description of the tabernacle and the way it was laid out, he's ready now to talk about tabernacle worship and draw out some implications from it. So he says in verse 6, Now, when these things have, have been so prepared, when the tabernacle has been set up, laid out the way it's supposed to, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, that is the first room, the what he called earlier the holy place, but he's actually going to call the most holy place the holy place in a second. So the first room, um, they're continually entering into that, performing the divine worship. There were daily activities for the priests in the tabernacle. Some of the routine activities were they had to tend the lamps to make sure it was filled with oil. The uh, wicks were trimmed and it was continuing to burn. They offered incense every morning and every evening on the incense altar there in that uh, first room. Uh, they changed the, the bread on the table every Sabbath. Uh, there were the morning sacrifices and evening sacrifices. So all these activities were going on on the daily in uh, the tabernacle. So priests had their, their responsibilities every day. They went into that first room performing the divine worship. Uh, but um, the, the inner room, the second room, well, that was a different story. Uh, and so he says this in verse 7, but into the second room, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. What he's talking about here is the Day of Atonement. You can read about it if you want to in Leviticus 16, and you can get a whole sense of what happened on that day. That was the only day of the year where you could go behind that second curtain into the Holy of Holies, which signified entering into the presence of God. It only happened on the Day of Atonement. And not only that, only one person was allowed to go in. That was the high priest. And not only that, he, he had to make sure he took blood with him and blood both for his own sins and his own atonement and for the sins of the people. Notice that even the sins of the people committed in ignorance. This is the distinction that the Old Testament law makes between intentional, willful rebellion against the covenant uh, versus unintentional um, sins that were not sins of rebellion and high hand against the covenant and against God. And when he says, not without blood, there was a lot of blood that was actually involved in the Day of Atonement ceremony. On the Day of Atonement, the usual morning sacrifices were offered. Then the high priest would actually offer a sin offering for himself and for his household to make atonement for them. Uh, he would actually take some coals from that altar of incense into the Holy of Holies and burn incense there in the Holy of Holies. Then he entered again to take the blood of the sin offering for himself, and he would sprinkle that seven times uh, on the atonement cover, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Then he would go out and make a sacrifice, uh, a goat for a sin offering for the sins of the people, and entered back through the first room into the second room with the, that blood from that goat and sprinkled that seven times uh, on the mercy seat. Uh, then he actually made atonement for the, the tabernacle itself, smearing blood uh, of these offerings on the horns of the altar of incense in the first room. He made atonement for uh, the 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 offer the the major altar for burnt offerings by smearing blood on its horns, the horns of that altar, um, and then finally we'd be done with the blood and done with the sacrifice, send out the scapegoat and all of that. So 
There was a lot of blood used in this ceremony, as the author of Hebrews points out, right? Like he could only go in once a year. He had to offer sacrifice for himself and his family. Uh, he had to do it for the sins of the people. And he had to make sure he could only go in there with blood. Um, and, and so every day, the priests carried out worship activities in the holy place over and over and over again. But only one person, once a year, could enter into the most holy place. And he had to do so with blood. So now, having noted all of that, the author of Hebrews then draws out some key implications of all this. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. When he says that the way into the holy place, he seems to mean the most holy place, the inner room. He's just used the phrase outer tabernacle for the first room. And so holy place here, even though it's a little bit confusing, seems to refer to the most holy place, the inner room, the holy of holies. Uh, this is the way it's described actually in the Day of Atonement passage in Leviticus 16. It's described as the holy place inside the veil, Leviticus 16 too. So he seems to be actually using the phrase the way it's used there in Leviticus 16. And so the way into the most holy place, which symbolizes God's present, God's presence was not open and available as long as the, the tabernacle was standing and he had all this first room activity and all of that. And he says all of this is a symbol for the present time. Uh, that is, it was pointing ahead to, a, to the time when God would open the way into the true holy place, beyond the veil, into his true presence. The word translated symbol is actually the word for parable. In other words, all of this taught uh, a deeper reality. It was a, a earthly visible lesson of a deeper spiritual reality. It was a parable for the present time. What specifically was it a symbol or a parable of? Well, he goes on to discuss the offerings and the rituals, and they're not being able to actually bring complete uh, cleansing to the worshiper. That's what it's a symbol of. In other words, it's a symbol that this wasn't the final word on worship and cleansing the people from sin and entering into the presence of God. That's what it's a parable of. And so he says, accordingly, after he says, which is a symbol for the present time, he says, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they only relate to food, drink, and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until a time of reformation. What's the problem? Uh, well, the problem was that they couldn't make the worshiper perfect. This is a parable by way of a sort of weakness or deficiency. It's like, man, this teaches a lesson. It teaches a lesson by we got to do this over and over again. We can only go into the inner room um, once a year. And so it's a parable of restricted access. It's a parable of the uh, deficiency of sacrifice. Um, and so it's a parable that this isn't the final word. It could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. And that idea of making them perfect means bring them to completion, provide complete cleansing, provide complete and final redemption. It's not that the sacrifices were bad, 
We should never think that. And it's always a shame when Christians mock it or make fun of it. It was rules and it was rituals and all these things you had to do, right? It's not that they were bad. It's that they, they weren't enough and they weren't the final word. They didn't provide the final solution to the problem of sin and death and defilement. The offerings made and the rituals performed under the Old Covenant were, in other words, provisional. Um, they were for that time period working up to the ultimate and final cleansing. So they were an important part of that stage of redemption, and they served their purpose well for a time, but they were never intended to be the end-all, be-all of God's plan of redemption. They were deficient because they were only about food and drink and various washings for the body. They didn't get to the heart of the matter. And it was to be that way, he says, until a time of reformation. That phrase, time of reformation, parallels the phrase present time when it says it's a parable for the present time. Um, time of reformation parallels that. The idea is that the tabernacle or temple worship in the first century, including the offerings and the rituals, was a parable pointing forward to the time when God would fulfill what they meant. Well, that time began with the coming of and the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. So the time of Reformation has begun. It began with the coming and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so what we see is the tabernacle worship, as described in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, shows that there was severe restriction of access uh, into God's presence. And the tabernacle service showed that the sacrifices and rituals could not provide definitive cleansing, final cleansing. Uh, but now that Messiah has come, well, now a superior cleansing has come. And how is it superior? Well, that's where the author of Hebrews goes. And so verse 11 says, but when Christ appeared, right? All this other stuff was pointing forward to the present time, to the time of reformation. But now that Christ has appeared, the, here we are, we're at that time. So when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, and he's already talked about this in chapter seven, right? That Jesus is a high priest, a high priest of the things that God had promised, these better promises and all of that. Well, now that, um, now that he has appeared, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the one not made by hands, that is not of this creation. And so Jesus, as the high priest, he entered through the first room, the outer tabernacle, into the most holy place, the very presence of God. And we're not talking about the copy and the shadow from chapter 8. Uh, we're not talking about the one that's made by human hands, that is not of this creation. We're talking about the true one. God's throne room itself, uh, the, the, the one in heaven, that's where Jesus entered, not the mere earthly replica. And that's the first way that Jesus' offering and Jesus' ministry as high priest is superior. He entered into the true tabernacle, which is greater and more perfect than the copy and the shadow, the replica that's on earth. And not only that, but it's also superior in what he offered. Look at verse 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves. So he entered into and through the, the more perfect tabernacle. And he didn't do it with the blood of goats and calves, but through, with his own blood, he entered the holy place. 
that is the Holy of Holies, the inner room, uh, the place where atonement was made under the old covenant once a year when the high priest entered. Well, he entered into the the true and perfect most holy place, God's true presence. And he did so once for all, once for all people, once for all time. And as a result of that, he obtained eternal redemption. Jesus's ministry as high priest is superior because not only did he enter into the greater and more perfect tabernacle, but he entered into it with his own blood on the basis of his own blood, not that of goats and calves, and he entered into it one time for all time, not over and over, not year after year. He did it once for all. And then he explains this further, comparing the effectiveness of Jesus' offering and the old covenant offerings in verse 13 by saying, for, he's explaining further, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, all of this is getting at um, some of the uh, sacrifices and offerings of the old covenant. In fact, the reference to the ashes of the heifer and the sprinkling of those who have been defiled seems to refer to uh, both the initial covenant um, inauguration ceremony in the book of Exodus and the occasional sacrifice uh, of a red heifer, which was burned and then its ashes were mixed with water and scarlet wool and and hyssop, and cedar wood, and then it was sprinkled on a person to cleanse them. Uh, this was particularly used if a person touched a, a dead body. This was how they could get cleansed from that, right? So if the, the daily offerings of goats and bulls and the annual offerings of that, if this occasional offering of this, this heifer and the sprinkling of ashes could actually cleanse you uh, ceremonially from uh, touching a dead body, if all that worked, if those provisional activities were effective under the old covenant, well, then what about the Messiah himself actually offering his very own blood? That's where he goes. So he says, if that was the case in verse 13, how much more, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, that is the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, like a perfect sacrifice, right? The offerings, there was qualifications for an animal to be offered and it had to be have no blemish. So here's the Messiah, like a lamb, unblemished, offering himself uh, by the spirit to God. Notice that you have you have Jesus, Spirit, God, the three-in-one, the triune God, all involved in this act of redeeming and reconciling and cleansing people. And so Jesus offers himself without blemish to God. How much more will that cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, remember, the author of Hebrews is writing to Jews who knew their scriptures, who knew the rituals, who had lived this. It was just a part of their culture and a part of their psyche and a part of the way they were wired. He knew all of that. And they were these offerings of the Mosaic Covenant, they were life to them. And now he, they're thinking of returning to that. And so with a lesser to greater rhetorical question, he's forcing them to stop and think. If the temporary and provisional and lesser offerings provided cleansing, don't you think that the Messiah offering himself would be even more effective? If the blood of animals could provide outward and ceremonial cleansing, how much more effective for true and ultimate cleansing is the very blood of Messiah himself? 
And and what could that offering do? Notice the way it ends. It could cleanse your conscience from dead works. Like um, what the old covenant offerings provided only provisionally, his offering provides completely. It could actually cleanse your conscience. That is, it could remove the guilt and the shame. It's not just the feelings of guilt, the real objective guilt and shame that we humans have before God because of our uh, rejection of his law and our sins against him. And not only that, not only could it cleanse your conscience, but it could also lead to a changed way of life. It could cleanse your conscience from dead works so that you could serve the living God, a changed way of life so that now in fullness and in trueness, we could actually live and serve God himself, the living God. So Jesus' offering cleanses our conscience and frees us to serve God himself. And in that regard, or that's why the author of Hebrews can say it provides eternal redemption, not provisional redemption, not just redemption for this year until the next time we have to do the Day of Atonement ceremony. It provides eternal redemption, complete, final cleansing and redemption. And that's what makes Jesus's ministry, Jesus's offering so much superior to the offerings of the Old Covenant. Hey, it's John, and before we leave this recording of the Listener's Commentary, I just wanted to say that the Listener's Commentary is a crowdfunded, listener-supported Bible teaching ministry, and the reason for that is because I believe that everyone should have access to the life-giving wisdom of the scriptures and the life-giving message of Jesus. And so want to give it away and make it as widely available to as many people as possible. And so this ministry is made possible by the generous support of a whole team of people that faithfully pray and donate to this ministry. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so at the link down in the notes below, or you can swing on over to listenerscommentary.com. You can click the give button and you can set up a recurring monthly donation donation right there, or you can uh, give a one-time gift, or another way to support the ministry is through the Study Hub and setting up a gift through the Study Hub, getting access to all the material inside the Study Hub beyond the audio that uh, will benefit you and help you study the Bible and will benefit uh, hundreds of other people who want to study the scriptures and use this resource to that end. So thanks a ton for your support. May God bless you for it.